0: Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts, chapter 1. You can find that in the Red Pew Bible on page 909. 909. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, verses 12 through 26. So Acts 1, 12 through 26. On average, the human body contains between four and a half and five and a half liters of blood circulating through it at any given time. It comes out to be about, a, a, um, I think, a gallon and a half to two gallons. Depending on your level of activity, it takes about a minute for that blood to circulate through your body. That's, that's a lot of liquid going really fast. And all of that is powered by your heart, which will beat about 100,000 times today this circulatory system, as it's called, is absolutely vital to your life. You need this in order to live. So as you take a breath in, your lungs fill with air, and the arteries and the capillaries that run throughout your body act like a superhighway dispersing blood to the rest of you, uh, all with its payload of, of oxygen and nutrients that you need in order to live. Meanwhile, Veins are working to return that depleted blood back to your heart and your lungs, carrying carbon dioxide and other waste gases out of your body, only to be replenished again so that the process can start over. It's an incredible, vital system, one of complexity and beauty, one more evidence of God's wisdom and power. You all know that breathing is necessary for life. It powers the systems that power you. And most of us can hold our breath for, for maybe a minute, maybe two, but we all know that we all need to breathe. If you hold your breath, you'll be fine for a few seconds, but eventually it will be the only thing you can think of. Your lungs will burn and throb. Your, your heart rate will quicken. Thoughts for air begin to be the only thing that dominate your 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 mind. And your head will even begin to pound. Nothing else will seem so important to you as breathing. And in the same way that breathing is essential for your life here and now, so also prayer is essential for life in Christ. You can have sound doctrine. You can be an active attender, maybe even a member of a local church. You can perform all sorts of loving acts and good deeds to your neighbor. But a life without prayer is like a body that has all the parts and the pieces in place, but which has no life or breath in it. And that is because prayer is absolutely vital for a relationship with God. And it is no wonder that the times when we feel the furthest from God and the most starved in our faith oftentimes are the times when we are least vibrant in our prayer life. God calls his people to pray because he intends for us to have a vibrant relationship with him. Uh, He calls us as our king to come before his throne, to lay our souls bare to him, to make confession to him that we may be restored to him, to breathe in this heavenly air so that we may live and thrive as his people. He instructs us to pray without ceasing because prayer exercises our faith and builds up the assurance of our hope which we have in Christ. Prayer raises our eyes from the weakness and the need that we have to the glory of Christ and the power of God. Prayer fuels the praise of the church and it directs the work of the church And it exalts the name of Jesus because when we come before the throne of God in his name, as his people, as his beloved children, we come exalting him as evidence of what he has done. Now, in spite of the vital role that prayer plays in our lives, I have never met a Christian who said that they were satisfied with their prayer life. In fact, I find that one of the easiest ways to make a Christian feel guilty is to ask them how is your prayer life going? But God means for us to pray. And given the way that prayer is so essential for having a vibrant relationship with God, it should be the desire of every believer to grow in this vital spiritual discipline. And so that's what I hope to call and equip you to do this morning as we look at Acts chapter 1 verses 12 through 26. If you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's word as I read our passage. This is the word of the Lord. Then they, that's the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of person was in all, about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please be seated. Well, this is quite a passage. And in this passage, Luke clues us in uh, to the things that took place in, in the time between Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost. Now, judging from what Luke says in verse 3, that Jesus had presented himself alive to the disciples, appearing to them at various times during 40 days, speaking to them about the kingdom of God, and equipping them to be his witnesses. When it seems that we're meant to understand that all of this was taking place in the course of about 10 days following Jesus' ascension, since the day of Pentecost would have been 50 days from the Passover. So, we're about, talking about, about a week and a half here. Uh, last week, uh, when we started this series, this new series of the book of Acts, we looked at the mission which Jesus gave his church. A mission to be his witnesses in all the world. And we considered how Jesus worked in the time between when he had risen from the dead and when he ascended into heaven to prepare his disciples for that mission. Now, the passage we're looking at today carries out that same goal. Though Jesus had ascended into heaven, we see that he is still at work in and through his church preparing them for this task. Now, Luke spends a significant amount of time in this passage telling us about how Matthias was chosen to replace Judas as one of the twelve apostles. But there is a, a work going on here which led to that decision Uh, which was what we want to focus on today. As we look at this passage and what it records about Jesus' disciples as they waited on Jesus to fulfill his promise, to equip them with the power they needed to be his witnesses, we see that there is something reigning above all things that they did. We see that in this in-between time, that they were first and foremost committing themselves to prayer. Prayer is the starting place for every action that the disciples of Jesus take from here on out. And so that's really what I want to focus with you uh, on, this pa- uh, on as we go through this passage together. So, um, this is going to frighten a lot of you. I've actually got six points for you today, which are six principles taken from this text for you to take with you into your prayer life. So, six principles. For prayer, uh, I'm going to give you those as we come to them. So, uh, beginning with our first one, which is that we must pray with patience. God intends for us to pray with patience. Now, one of the reasons I think that many Christians struggle to have a vibrant prayer life or to pray as they should is because prayer can just feel so passive. Prayer requires us to wait on God to trust in His power, and even to submit ourselves to His will and what He has planned. Whereas we, we enjoy instant gratification. We, we like getting things done. We like coming to the end of the day and looking at a completed list and saying, look at what I did. We like feeling like we're in control. Prayer seems to offer very little in the way of those things. And so even when we do sit down to prayer our minds can be assaulted with all the things that we need to get done. And we get restless. All those things seem to be important because of the way they they nag at us and the way they they feel like something that we can actually do something about. And so prayer oftentimes gets pushed to the back burner, something that we'll do if if we get to it, rather than the first thing, the first priority that we're called to do in anything. Now, working hard is a good thing. But it's not the ultimate thing. In John chapter 15 verse 5, Jesus tells us that just as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. So if you cut a branch off from a tree, it cannot bear fruit. He says, so also you cannot bear fruit apart from me. Likewise, Solomon tells us in Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2, that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor those who build it labor in vain, unless the Lord watches over the city he says, a watchman stays awake in vain it is vain that you rise up early and go to go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep now, there are few texts in the Bible that motivate me and call I think call us to action like it's a battle cry. It's like, get up and go. Then Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. The great commission, it is called, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That commission is the banner that flies over the church of christ and it is a call to action a call to go and to do a call that's meant to get us out of the chair and to go and take the good news of the gospel wherever god would send us but luke tells us that jesus also gave his disciples a direction not only to go into all the world with this message of salvation but also to do something first, to return to Jerusalem and to wait. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to wait. I don't like to stand in line. Uh, I don't think anyone in our culture really likes to stand in line. You can have someone basically, virtually stand in line for you today. You can just log in online and come in when it's your time. And yet we see that even as Jesus sends his church out, he stops them. And he tells them to wait. We see that the church was not yet ready to answer the call to be Jesus' witnesses everywhere because they had not yet received the gift of the Holy Spirit who was going to equip them to accomplish all these things as the body of Christ here on earth. Who tells us in verse 12 that Jesus' disciples did in fact obey him. They, They listened to him. They returned from this mount uh, called Olivet, which is about a Sabbath day journey, uh, which is equates to about three-quarters of a mile away, uh, and then they returned to the upper room or the, the place where they were staying. We see that the disciples listened to Jesus. They They went to Jerusalem, and they waited. Peter, John, and James, and Andrew, Philip, And Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simeon the zealot, and Judas the son of James—all of Jesus's closest disciples—all except for one man, named Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed Jesus and who had died in his guilt. Now there is a kind of waiting that is passive and inactive, like when you're when you're uh, calling customer service and you get put on hold and you listen to this elevator music forever. That's passive and inactive. No one likes that. But that's not the sort of waiting that we see Luke recording about how the disciples waited together to receive this gift in obedience to Jesus. In verse 14, Luke tells us that all of these, so all these disciples, were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we see that the disciples weren't just holed up in a room waiting somewhere, just waiting for things to get interesting. No, they were waiting like Jesus had told them to do, but as they waited, they were doing something. They were devoting themselves together to prayer. Now, before the church spread its wings and launched into the world to herald the good news of the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Luke wants us to know that Before it exercised the authority which Jesus was giving her, that the church needed to learn how to breathe. The church had to pray. It was praying when God laid on it the decision to call a replacement for Judas. And it was praying, we will see next week, when the gift of the Holy Spirit arrived on the day of Pentecost. Jesus' call to go into all the world, to make disciples, to bring the message of life to the dead, to announce freedom to those who are chained up in their sin, to bring light to those dwelling in the darkness of their sin, to make war on the kingdom of Satan, is a call that is above us. It is a call that comes from God and which is executed by God through his people. If we think for a moment that God depends on us to glorify the name of Christ and all the earth, we've got it wrong. This is God's work. And if we're going to be part of it, the way he has called us to be, then we must rely on him. And that is why God's people must pray. There is nothing passive about prayer. To the contrary, We see that prayer is faith put into action. And and it is that because it is an appeal to God to act, an appeal to God to exalt the name of Christ. Prayer is communion with God, communication with God. It's where we learn to rely on God's promises and entrust ourselves to his power to act for us. It's where we, uh, we submit ourselves to him and call on him to act. A prayer is like the radio or the walkie-talkie that connects the troops who are in battle to their commander calling in artillery and airstrikes. There is, in the moment, it may feel as if we are doing a small thing when we pray. It, It may feel like we could be accomplishing more if we were spending our time and our energy elsewhere. But the mission that Christ has given his troops is one that requires divine firepower. And just as God was the one who went before the armies of Israel driving out the Canaanites uh, as we saw in the book of Joshua so also God is the one who goes before his church as we answer his call to take this message of good news into all the world and so it is that the first principle we must learn for prayer from the disciples in this passage is is that we must commit ourselves to praying with patience Luke tells us in verse 14 that the disciples had devoted themselves to praying together as they waited on Jesus to fulfill this promise. But he says something else about the way that they prayed. He says that they prayed with one accord, with one mind, one passion and longing. Likewise, Luke tells us that they were devoting themselves to prayer, praying with constancy and urgency. Now, the idea that Luke communicates to us about what was happening here in the upper room is that the disciples were waiting on Jesus' promise to come to pass. And as they did, they didn't just commit themselves to an outward show of prayer, but that they actually prayed with one mind and one heart, with a persistent passion for the outpouring of God's power. Uh, They prayed with hearts that were laid bare and with one passion for the glory of God. They prayed on the basis of everything they had seen and heard and been taught by Christ. So we see that there's a second principle of prayer for us that we ought to take from this passage into our own lives, and that is that we ought to pray with great longing for God and for his glory, to pray with a heart of integrity where holy passions produce words of worship and praise, uh, and thanks, and confession, and intercession, and love, and reverence. One of the barriers that we face in having the prayer life that we want is that the words we pray are not always matched with the passions for God that we have felt or know we ought to feel. Busy schedules keep us operating at the very edge of what we have time for. And so prayer feels sometimes like a burden. One more thing we've got to do. Perhaps there's maybe a persistent sin in our life, something that's actually competing for the affection of our heart, and either we are ashamed to pray because we, we do not feel that God will hear our prayers because of that sin, or worse, that sin has become something that so consumes our, our time and our energy that we lack the time and the desire to pray at all. If you ever felt that sort of drag on your prayer life, maybe you're feeling that even now, then I just want to encourage you from the disciples' example and from from what we know about their lives. You see, the disciples prayed as they did in this passage, not because they had everything figured out or because they were fully sanctified or because they were holy, but because everything was not quite as it should have been. They were living in this time between Jesus' promise of the Spirit and the fulfillment of that promise. And that drove them to pray together because they were longing for the fullness of that promise to come. The disciples who are mentioned here were all sinners. They were far from sanctified. The passion and the unity that we see here wasn't something that was innate to them. It came because of what they had experienced in Christ, and it came because of their relationship with Him. Passion in prayer is not something that you just conjure up. It's something that is produced in us as God works to conform us into the image of Christ. So if anything, the feeling of a lack of passion in our prayer life is what should drive us to pray in the first place. Don't wait until you feel like praying to pray. Pray until you do, because it's oftentimes uh, that in the, it's in the forge of prayer that the passion of faith is hammered out. Prayer is where we confess our shortcomings to God and ask Him to work in our sluggish hearts. Prayer is where we confess our hope and our faith in the sufficiency of Christ to do these things. A uh, Prayer is where the truths of scripture and the doctrines of God take on a, a practical form, a personal form, and they affect our hearts. Prayer cultivates faith because it brings us into contact and communion with the one who gives us this life. Jonathan Edwards notes that one of the distinguishing factors of a heart that has true and right affections for God is that it is always longing to be further satisfied in God himself. And I think that prayer is the place where that gets hammered out the most. So while the disciples model for us how we ought to pray with passion and for longing for God, I think that they also call us to pray that our passion and our longing would grow all the more and that as it grows, it would chase other passions and other desires for lesser things which are still lurking around in our hearts. So pray with passion. Third, the third principle for prayer that we get from this passage is that we are called to pray together as one. Luke tells us that the disciples were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together. As they waited, they prayed. And as they prayed, they prayed with one mind and one passion. But we see here that they also prayed together. And this wasn't just the apostles who were praying together. Luke actually tells us that they were praying together with the women who who had been with Jesus in his ministry, and that they prayed with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and that they even were praying with Jesus' own brothers. Uh, That's a significant statement. If you know the history of the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus' brothers actually mocked him and had at one point tried to uh, shame him by by luring him to come to Jerusalem and make make a mockery of himself. We know from church history that Jesus actually appeared to his brothers, one of which was James, who became the head of the church in Jerusalem and a very important figure in the book of Acts. So we see that Jesus had changed the lives of his brothers, and that they were, although they had made fun of him and scoffed at him in in the past, now here they are, gathered with their own mother, with the apostles, with uh, this assembly of other believers, praying to Jesus. In fact, if we look at verse 15 here, we'll see that at least at the time when Peter uh, stood up to speak to everyone, this group actually comprised about 120 people. So this was no small group. And you just got to say, this is, this is important, because ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the church of Jerusalem, a group made up of men who were and women, uh, a group made up of fishermen tax collectors, a former assassin, naysayers and skeptics, and, scandalously for the time, even women. Look at this church. What a motley crew. And yet here they are, and they're praying, and they're praying together. Why? Because they were witnesses of the risen Christ. Their eyes had been opened to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. And so they believed on him. And they had received his promise. They were waiting for him to fulfill that promise. And that common faith brought them together in one community as one body. And as that one corporate body, we see that they were dedicating themselves to praying with one mind and one passion earnestly to God. Now, it's easy enough to see the principle that's being set down here for us. God calls his church to pray, not just individually as private Christians, though that is an important part of having a vibrant spiritual life in Christ, but also God calls us to pray corporately with God's people. To neglect corporate prayer as a church is to neglect one of the primary functions we have been given as Christ followers. When we pray together as a church with one passion and one accord for the glory of Christ, we are functioning together the way the body of Christ is meant to function. When we pray with and for one another, then we are able to rejoice in each other's joys and to bear with one another in each other's sorrows and weaknesses. The corporate prayer life of a local church is a huge indicator of the health of that body. And we see that the church, the Uh, the church in Jerusalem, the church in its infancy was not dedicated to programs or to appearance, but to praying for each other and with each other. So it stands that if we want to thrive as a local church, then we must take this principle into our own faith and practice. Pray in solitude, in the silence of your own home. Jesus often got away to pray to his Father. And you actually, as we read in the lead-up to this and what Jesus says before he, he gives the model of the Lord's Prayer, we actually see that Jesus calls us to do the same, to, to get away, to pray in private. But we always see also that he expects us and calls us to pray with and for one another, to actually function together as one body, with one heart and with one passion for the gospel and his kingdom. So make corporate prayer a priority in your life. <clears throat> Our fourth principle for prayer that we have from this section <coughs> excuse me, is that we ought to pray because of the promise. When Jesus' followers returned to Jerusalem, they did it because of what he had said to them. Do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. So they didn't go to Jerusalem because they had nowhere else to go. They went because of Jesus' word and the promise that he had given them from the Father. So they had a divine purpose, which was going to send them out into the world to be his witnesses. A prayer is not a magical chant by somehow, which somehow we, we manage to coerce God to work for us. Prayer is actually an act of obedience that believes God's promise and then asks him to work. Prayer is a mysterious and wonderful thing because while Jesus tells us that our heavenly father knows our needs before we even bow our heads to pray to him, he still invites us in and calls us to come into his presence to make our requests known to him, to ask him to work on our behalf, to confess our sin to him and to seek forgiveness at his throne. Jesus tells us that that our father's ears are eager to hear from us, that they are pleasant. That our prayers are pleasant to Him. So prayer is not a means of leveraging of leverage to get things from God, but it is instead the bringing of ourselves to Him with the desire to see Him work for the glory of Christ. Prayer seeks the priorities of God, and therefore we can pray to Him in confidence because we know that He will always work for the glory of Christ, who is our King. So as the disciples waited on the coming of the Holy Spirit in the fulfillment of God's word, they prayed. As we ourselves wait on God to move and to act in our city, and our community, and even in us, and as we await the return, the second coming of Christ, let us pray with confidence because his promise is sure and it is worthy of our trust. Now a fifth principle for prayer we are to take from this passage is that we ought to pray, as a church, to endure in the midst of scandal. Pray to endure in the midst of scandal. Now in verse 15, Luke tells us that while the church waited on the coming of the Holy Spirit, that they also had to deal with the issue of Judas Iscariot. Now Judas, as you well know, betrayed Jesus to the Jewish leaders for 30 pieces of silver. At the time, his actions had taken the rest of the disciples completely by surprise. He was a trusted member of their company. Uh, They actually trusted him to be in charge of the money bag. He had walked with them. He had participated in his share of the ministry as one of Jesus' closest friends. But Judas had traded all of that for money, money that he did not even get to enjoy. Matthew tells us that uh, in, 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 it tells us in his gospel how, how Judas' guilt consumed him. He tried to give the money back and clear his conscience, but we're told that the Jewish leaders would not take it back because it was blood money, and so instead he threw it into the temple, departed from them, and hanged himself. The scandal of Judas. Both what he did to betray Jesus and what happened to him after he died was something that was known to all of Jerusalem. Luke fills us in agreeing with Matthew that the money Judas had gotten from the Jewish leaders was actually used, since they couldn't put it in the treasury, they actually just took it and they purchased a certain plot of land, a potter's field. Uh, And unlike Matthew, who tells us that Judas died by committing suicide, Luke actually focuses on what happened to Judas's body after, after the act. Uh, we see that no one came for Judas. No one came and buried him. No one treated him with respect or dignity. His body remained where it was until finally it fell and burst open. That was, that was Judas's reward for wickedness. The place where he died then became a burial ground for strangers, and it was called by the locals Akaldama, which means field of blood. It's not a place you wanted to live by. It was a cursed place. This, this is a scandalous event. Uh, this is a scandalous thing to be hanging over the church in its infancy. Luke has included it here because I think for at least two reasons. First, he shows us through the words of Peter that the scandal of Judas had not in any way upset the purposes and the plans of God. Judas' betrayal had actually been ordained. In verse 16, Peter says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The particular passage that Peter had in mind, uh, which he gave then to the church, is Psalm uh, 69, verse 25, which says, May his camp become desolate, and let there, no one, let there be no one to dwell in it. Well, Judas' punishment fit his crime, and it fulfilled what had been spoken of him. Uh, Peter's assessment of Judas actually matches what Jesus himself says in John chapter 17, verse 12, in the midst of the high priestly prayer where he says, Holy Father, speaking of his disciples, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So the first reason Luke fills us in on this this little aside, and the reason he fills us in on Peter's words and on the scriptures he quotes, is so that we'll see and understand that this was according to the plan of God, and that the scandal of Judas was not going to upset the Holy Spirit's purpose of exalting Jesus. Now the second reason that Luke has included this really I mean this is not the kind of thing like we have we read to Titus from his storybook bible you will not find this passage in there because it's terrifying. But the reason Luke has included it here is because it also sets the stage for how the church called Matthias to be numbered among the 11 apostles taking Judas's place. And we'll look at that a little deeper in a moment. For now, I just want to connect what has been said about the way that the church was praying for one another to Peter's address. I am fully convinced that the reason that Peter was able to stand before his fellow apostles and the rest of these believers who were gathered together in deep prayer, the the reason he was able to speak to them in this way with confidence was because they had been praying. In fact, I'd be willing to suggest to you that without such prayer, the church never would have survived the fall of Judas, a man whose end was scandalous even to the men who paid him to betray Jesus in the first place. It was because of prayer that Peter was equipped to see the meaning of the scriptures and God's own purpose of Judas's betrayal. In over 2,000 years, the church has seen plenty of scandal. If you talk to your average atheist, you will not make it through a conversation without hearing them bring up the Crusades. The church is no stranger to it. It was there in Paul's day. It saw the rise of heresies that assaulted the gospel and the identity of Christ uh, in the first 500, 700 years, it has in recent day seen numerous prominent celebrity pastors and Christian voices who have either been caught up in scandal or have de- who have denied the faith. The church, I've got news, the church will continue to face scandal and assault but Peter shows us that while these things may take us off guard, they do not take God off guard, nor can they upset his purpose of exalting King Jesus as the Savior of all the world. If Judas's scandal, Judas's betrayal, and Judas's body and his legacy left behind, that the inheritance he had was literally called the field of blood, could not upset the church when it was at its very weakest it will not any scandal that could face the church now will not upset God's purposes for tomorrow. Judas teaches us an important lesson that we must not build our faith on anything less than the invincibility of the purpose of the Holy Spirit in his work to exalt Christ. Friends do not build your faith on the foundation of philosophers or theologians or celebrity pastors. I have often said that I do not entrust myself to any man until they are dead because it always seems like theologians go on a weird way if you do it too early. I actually had a professor in college that said you, that he, he felt like every theologian when they turned sixty should be taken out back and shot. <laughs> And then we asked him, well, how old are you? And he says, 63. So we always had it out for him. And then he retired. <laughs> Don't build your faith on the faithfulness of other people. Build it on the faithfulness of Christ. Pursue Christ and pursue him in prayer. So that even if your heroes, who are mere men, fail you, your faith will not be dashed to pieces. Because it is founded on the one who never fails. So pray to endure in the midst of scandal. Finally, pray to discern God's will. This section of Acts begins with prayer and it ends with prayer. Peter, after he had explained how Judas' death fit into the plan of God according to the scriptures, transitions to another scripture. Psalm 109 verse 8. To indicate to the rest of the church what ought to take place now that someone needed to take Judas's spot. In verse 21, he says, So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And In verse 23, we see that they put two men forward, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. If the lot had fallen to him, I just wonder what on earth we would have called him, because he's got three names. Now, as we look at these two men who were put forward, we see that they were men who fit the qualification. They had been with Jesus from the beginning. They had witnessed his resurrection and, and his ascension. They were in every way, humanly speaking, qualified for the office, but only one could be chosen. What do you do in a situation like that? Well, the church went to prayer. It went to prayer. Verse 24, and they prayed and they said, you Lord know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship with Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And in verse 25, we're told that the church cast lots for them and that the lot fell to Matthias so that he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, Having just finished Joshua, we are not strangers to this method of casting lots, of decision making. Remember, the land that was given by God to Israel was divided among them according to lot as they fell each to each tribe. This is actually how the priest in the Old Testament would inquire for people uh, before the Lord. He would, he would cast the Urim and the Thuman, which were kept in the linen ephah that he wore, and as he ministered uh, before God on behalf of the people. So while I don't necessarily think that most of our decisions ought to be, this is the way that we're ought to carry out our decisions, we can see how this practice actually has a lot in common with an Old Testament precedence. And here again, it's being emphasized that this decision was the Lord's choice, not the decision of the apostles, and and, and not the decision of a popularity contest with the rest of the church. This was God's decision. The key thing to notice here is that prayer, is, is the role that prayer played in the church as it charted a way forward. When we see these lots cast, we shouldn't think, oh, well, look at that, they're leaving the future of the church to chance. That's because they perceived through the guidance of the Holy Spirit that they were called to, uh, to call someone to take Judas' place, and so they, we see that they pursued that together in wisdom and in prayer, trusting in God to make his will known in a very Old Testament way and we see that God, just, God did just that. Now, so often, I think we reserve prayer to be the last option, to be the thing that we turn to when we have exhausted every other resource. When what we have seen in this passage, uh, how vital uh, prayer is, is that it is to be the first step that we take. The early church when they were, that as they waited, as they sought God in the scriptures, as they were gathered together, we see that they were of one mind, and they were of one passion, that they were seeking to follow Christ as they waited patiently on the fulfillment of his promise, and that each of those things, that they did each one of those things, breathing in the sweet heavenly air of prayer, walking in response to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So as we seek, as a church, to discern how God would use us to reach our community, our state, our nation, even our world with the word of the gospel, then we must first and foremost commit ourselves to the great duty of prayer. We must see the vital role that prayer is meant to play in the life of the body, and we must rely upon the grace of God, knowing that even as we pray, Christ is there interceding for us so that we may know that our prayers are, in fact, heard by an attentive Father who loves us and who has the very best plans for us. So, in conclusion this morning, we have seen the vital role that prayer plays in the life of believers as individuals and also in the life of the church. And we've looked this morning at six principles for prayer. We've seen that we are, to call, we are called to pray with patience, that we ought to pray with longing, that we should pray together, that we ought to pray because of God's promise, that we must pray in order to endure scandal. And finally, we have seen that we we are called to pray in order to discern God's will. May God grant us grace to implement these principles into our own lives. And as he does, may our affection and our love for Christ grow all the more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you hear our prayers. And we thank you for the example of the early church, uh, seeing that as, even as they were waiting for uh, the promise of Christ, of the Holy Spirit to come, uh, that they were dedicating themselves uh, to prayer. And we see how you use that even then uh, for their health, to give them a direction, to, 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 to navigate them through the shame of Judas' betrayal, and to, uh, bring, to bring things to make them whole again. And Father, we confess to you that so oftentimes our prayer lives are not what they ought to be. And though that may be a source of guilt in our lives, I pray, Father, that that would actually be a source of motivation in our lives that would drive us to pray all the more. I pray, Father, that that you would in fact hear our prayers, that you would answer them, and that as you do, that you would exalt Christ in our lives and in the lives of those who we know. Father, it is our earnest desire to be witnesses such as you have called us to be. And I pray, Father, that you would equip us for that task in this new year, that we would be a faithful church, and that as we, as we follow through with that, that Christ would be exalted. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.